Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. And if you remain standing, take your Bibles, turn if you will to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, as we continue our study through the book of James. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And so if you'll follow along now as I read our text, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, beginning now in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. On the afternoon of July 23rd, 2018, at the intersection of Highway 299 and Powerhouse Road near French Gulch, an older couple towing a two-axle trailer blew a tire on the trailer, allowing the steel rim to scrape the pavement, which then sparked Uh, a fire in the dry vegetation along the edge of the highway. And the wind caused the fire to spread rapidly. And we know what happened. On July 26th, the fire jumped the Sacramento River, making its way into the city of Redding, causing the evacuation of some 38,000 people. Evacuations also took place in Summit City, Keswick, Lewiston, Shasta Lake City, Igo, Ono, and French Gulch. 
The fire burned 229,651 acres, or 359 square miles, before it was 100% contained late on August 30th, 2018. Eight people died in the fire, including three firefighters. It destroyed at least 1,604 structures, at least 1,077 of those were homes while damaging 277 others. It is now the seventh most destructive fire in California history, as well as the 12th largest wildfire recorded in modern California history. The car fire cost over $1.6 billion, and that was in 2018 dollars. $1.6 billion in damages, including $1.5 billion in insured losses and more than $158.7 million in suppression costs. I mean, that illustrates the devastating power of fire, and we understand that. But it's also a parable of spiritual reality. James wants us to know our tongues are small yet powerful instruments that can be as devastating, destructive, and deadly as a raging forest fire. And that's true. Nations have risen and nations have fallen because of the tongue. Lives have been elevated. Lives have been torn down by the tongue. The tiny tongue is a powerful force in human life. And James, the brother of our Lord and the writer of this epistle, understood this as well as any man in history. And he was very concerned about what happens when Christians open their mouths. And that's why in every chapter he warns about the words coming out of the mouth, coming out of the mouth of a Christian. But here in our text, James gives the fullest discussion of the use and control of the tongue. Uh, that we can find in Scripture. In fact, no other section of the Bible speaks with greater clarity and impact on the potential destructive power of our words. And as we come to our text this morning, keep in mind that prior to addressing the issue of the tongue here in chapter 3, James had just explained the difference between a dead faith and a genuine saving faith. And his point is that true saving faith in our hearts will result in and manifest itself by good works in our lives. In other words, what we do reveals who we are. And conversely, he said, faith without works is dead. It's non-existent and can never save. And so even though James seems to jump now into a totally unrelated discussion of the tongue, the context tells us otherwise. Because what James has to say about the use and control of the tongue is in keeping with his theme and the central message of the book that genuine faith will manifest itself. It'll manifest itself in good works, as we've already learned. And the point in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, is that just as good works, just as what we do reveals who we are, so too our words. You know, what we say reveals who we are. If we've been born again, we've received a changed heart, a a brand new heart, so that the words that we say then should reflect that we are in fact a new creation in Christ. The genuineness of our faith inevitably will be revealed in the words that come out of our mouths because ultimately they come from our hearts. As Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And so the tongue is the great revealer of the human heart. In fact, nothing is more telling on the heart than the mouth. But the tongue is also the most difficult member of the body to control. There is no easier way to sin than with your mouth. In fact, the tongue is one of the most common ways in which believers sin, and this was of great concern to James. And so here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, he confronts us with the question, what does your speech tell you about yourself? What does your speech indicate about the true spiritual state of your heart? That's what James does in in most of this chapter. He's like a spiritual doctor who's saying, let me see your tongue. Because it's an accurate indicator of the spiritual health of your heart. And last time we looked at verses 1 and 2, which read, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. You know, if you were not here last time, you know, three weeks ago when we did the first two verses, I would encourage you to get the CD or go online and listen to it or or download it for free. But suffice it to say, in verse 1, James begins his instruction in regard to the tongue with teachers, which makes total sense. Because teachers generally use their tongues in their work far more than any other profession, and therefore they wield incredible power. And so James begins with the warning, not many of you should become teachers. And actually, it's much stronger than that. He's saying, stop becoming teachers. He's warning against people rushing into the ministry for the wrong reasons and motives. It's a warning that no one should ever presume to appoint themselves to the ministry. That no one should take up the task of teaching too casually. Because to teach the Word of God is to invite the closest scrutiny from God. And so James warns that those who teach will be judged by God with greater strictness because greater authority and responsibility brings with it greater accountability. And then in verse 2, he gave us a dose of reality When he said, for we all, you know, every one of us stumble in many ways. In other words, we sin in many ways. And the present tense indicates repeated stumbling. So James is saying, we all use our tongues and we all sin many times in many ways. We all find it easy to offend with our tongues and no right-minded Christian can possibly argue with that. And he says that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, that is, if anyone has managed to control his tongue completely, James says that man is perfect, able also to control his whole body perfectly as well. However, no one, no one except Jesus has ever done that. Our only hope as we seek to tame our tongues is that we are Christ and that we are being made increasingly like him. And the tongue is is very small, but it is extremely powerful. And James wants to impress this fact on our minds so that we don't underestimate the effects that it can have. And so as we pick up where we left off last time, in verses 3 to 5, James uses two analogies to show the disproportionate power of the tongue. 
Look with me at verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, all of you know that a horse is a good-sized animal, unless, of course, you have a miniature horse. But we're talking about your average horse. Horse is a good-sized animal. I mean, take, for example, an American quarter horse. It stands 14 to 16 and a half hands tall or 56 to 66 inches tall at the shoulders. They weigh approximately 1,000 to 1,080 pounds. I mean, that's a good-sized animal. Yet a quarter horse can easily run 45 miles an hour, and they have, in fact, been clocked at 55 miles an hour. And many can run a quarter mile in under 26 seconds. So the horse is a half ton of raw power. Yet the enormous power and energy of a horse can be brought under control by the use of a bit, just a tiny piece of metal placed in its mouth. And the point, obviously, is the extraordinary power and influence concentrated in one small object. And so it is with the tongue. In verse 4, James likens the tongue to the rudder on a ship. Look at verse 4. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Like all ships, ancient ships, small and large, were steered by an amazingly small rudder. Of course, it's still the same today, whether it's a ski boat or an aircraft carrier. And in in my study, I I read about aircraft carriers, just thinking of this whole idea of large ships and and small rudders. And I read that a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier, which is uh, the class of our largest carriers, they're 1,092 feet long overall. They're 250-some feet wide overall. That would be on the flight deck. They're 134 feet wide at the waterline. The flight deck on the Nimitz-class carriers is four and a half acres in size. It weighs approximately 100,000 tons, actually a little over that, fully loaded. It's powered by two nuclear reactors that power four bronze propellers, 25 feet in diameter, weighing 30 tons each. And behind them are two rudders, which are only 29 feet tall, and 22 feet long, relatively small for such a massive vessel. So this massive, heavy vessel is directed simply by a turn of its relatively small rudders on the stern. I mean, it's amazing how something as small as a rudder can control something as large as an aircraft carrier. And that's James' point. Something as small as the tongue can have a huge impact on our entire lives. And if it just affected our own lives, that would be one thing, but it also affects the lives of others, as we'll see. And we don't realize how powerful the tongue is. I mean, though it's small, it's extremely powerful and and capable of tremendous influence. Its power, both for good and for evil, is all out of proportion to its size. And after giving the illustrations of the bit and the rudder, look what James says in verse 5. He says, So also the tongue is a small member, 
yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is a small member. It's a very small part of the body, but James says it, it boasts of great things. In other words, it talks big. One translation says it, it makes grand speeches. Another renders it, yet it has great pretensions. So James here personifies the tongue and, and he describes it as though it's a person boasting. And this word translated boast occurs only here in the Bible. And it describes speaking with much confidence about great things, you know, focusing on pride towards oneself. It means to be proud, to talk big, to, to show off verbally. And the present tense indicates that the tongue continually declares boastfully. And James uses the example of boasting because it is the usual sin of the tongue. I mean, this is the, the part of the body that most serves pride. And so though it's small, it boasts of great exploits. And it's not an empty boast. In fact, it's, it's hard to exaggerate the disproportionate power of the tongue. I mean, it leaves in its wake a trail of destruction. It can influence men to violent action. It can crush the human spirit. It can spread hate and distrust. It can even lead to murder and to war. How have tyrants achieved power? They boasted what they would do. You know, they would deal with the, the Jewish problem or with the difference between rich people and poor people. You know, they, they would achieve utopia. And that was their boast, and so they were given power by the people. And, and what was the result? Well, the result was that in the last century, the 20th century, the world witnessed unspeakable tyranny, and literally tens of millions of people died. And it all began with one boasting tongue. When the prophet Daniel speaks about the appearing of the Antichrist, it's the man's great boasts that especially characterize him. In Daniel 11.36, we read, He, speaking of the Antichrist, shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of God. The Antichrist will gain enormous influence over all of mankind before the end of the world by the use of that little tongue of his. As one man said, this mere two-ounce slab of mucous membrane can legitimately boast of its disproportionate power to determine human destiny. And we have to look no further than our own lives and experience to know the power of the tongue to devastate and destroy. I mean, how many of us here this morning know the devastating nature of a tongue because we've been on the receiving end of someone's hateful, sharp, lying, deceitful tongue? You know, the children, uh, there's a rhyme that children sing, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not true. That's not true at all. Because the crushing, bitter pain of words spoken against us can hurt us long after a broken bone is healed. Words can inflict uh, such an injury on another person that it lasts for a lifetime. 
The tongue is impossible to tame naturally because it exercises power out of all proportion to its size. Loved ones, never doubt the power of the tiny tongue and never underestimate it. And now in, verse, in the rest of verse 5 through verse 8, James uses a series of graphic pictures as he speaks about the destructive power of the tongue. Look now at the rest of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I mean, a small fire, as small as a spark, can start a blaze that can destroy an entire forest uh, entire towns and cities displacing tens of thousands of people, as we in the North State know all too well. As James says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. That is an exclamation of the great danger of the tongue. That little piece of red flesh wedged into the mouth is powerful and sometimes even deadly. I mean, it has a fearful potential for wreaking mass destruction. And certainly, uh, the tongue also has a profound potential for great good. But the opposite is sadly and more commonly the case. And James makes his point in verse 6. Notice, he says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. James says the tongue is a fire. You know, that by, uh, it's, a, it's a fire that by implication is, is out of control and, and it's destroying everything that is in its path. And that's what happens, isn't it? One careless word, one thoughtless remark, one angry response, one vindictive reply, one defamatory comment, and a whole world of relationships is set on fire and incalculable damage is inflicted. An an unchecked tongue can assassinate a person's character, destroy a reputation, a relationship, and a life. And all it takes is a few careless words to cause a raging inferno that cannot be extinguished. You know, when rumors and gossip spread, we we say that they spread like what? Wildfire. The Bible also links gossip and fire. Proverbs 16, 27, A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Proverbs 26, 20, For lack of wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, Quarreling ceases. The picture there in in Proverbs 26.20 is that the whisperer or the one who passes on the, the slander or the gossip or the lie is like the wood that fuels the fire. And the next verse, verse 21 says, As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The word kindling means to burn up. And the picture is again of, of gossip and slander and, and contention being a fire that devastates. And the devastating power of, of a tongue to start a rumor, to spread a malignant lie. I mean, evil in its intent is like a wildfire that can't be stopped. And James is saying that those who misuse the tongue are guilty of spiritual arson. Spiritual arson. 
May we despise arsonists who start fires that destroy property and and lives. But how many are guilty of spiritual arson? Spiritual arson can spark a, a mere spark of a word can produce a firestorm that annihilates everything it touches. James says the tongue is a fire. And then he adds, notice this, it is a world of unrighteousness or a world of iniquity. The word translated here, world, speaks of the fallen, sinful world system that is corrupt in in every facet of its existence and is bent on rebellion against God. This is the way uh, this this word is used everywhere else in James. And the implication here is that all of the various dimensions of sinfulness that we find in this rebellious world, all of which deserve the judgment of hell, are expressed by the human tongue. As one commentator said, the tongue is a microcosm, a concentration point of this world's evils. I mean, certainly God made the tongue. And like all that God made, He made it good. It's not, it is not intrinsically evil. And the tongue is, of course, not the real cause of evil. It, it doesn't operate as an independent member of the body. The real cause of wickedness is a sinful heart. And the word tongue, as James uses it, stands for our words, and behind our words is the heart. So the tongue is not necessarily more evil than other members of the body, but speech, the point James is making is that our speech, our words, are involved in almost every form of sin and wickedness. I mean, think about that. There are not many sins that don't involve talking in some way. I mean, what sins have uh, the words of men not been involved in? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these Paul wrote about in Galatians 5. Our tongues are involved in all of those sins. And many others can be found on the tips of our tongues. I mean, think, for example, of God listening to all the words that will be spoken in this city in the next six hours. All the blasphemy and filth, all the sensuality, all the seductions, sexual immorality, adultery, all the lies and deceitful words, all the gossip, slander, murderous words, all the plans to hurt, harm, defraud, and deceive. The whole world of unrighteousness will first be expressed on a person's lips and then their hands and feet will soon follow them into that very sin. The tongue, James says, is a world of unrighteousness. And then look what else James says about the tongue. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body. Whole body simply means the whole person. The word stain means to corrupt, to defile, to stain, or to pollute. The evil words from an uncontrolled tongue will stain and damage what they do not entirely consume. 
And the present tense of the verb stains implies this is a constant staining. And so James is saying sinful, wicked words symbolized by the tongue stain the whole person. The reputation, character, judgment, and behavior, they're all constantly stained by the flow of filth that comes from an unbridled tongue. As Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The tongue stains the whole person. I mean, think about how careful you are as you, you put on a, a dress for a wedding, especially if it's your own wedding. Or think about how, how nervous men you might be when you put on that new white shirt and brand new silk tie uh, before, uh, during dinner. Because you only have to be careless once to get a spot or a stain on it, right? And it doesn't matter if the spot is a small one, it ruins everything. And so it is with the tongue and its words. It stains. The effect of the tongue's wickedness stains. It corrupts the whole person. Setting on fire, James says, the entire course of life. Setting on fire the entire course of life. Throughout the course of your life, through all the changing circumstances of life, the tongue continues to stain, corrupt, and defile. I mean, James is not only saying that there is no part of life which the tongue cannot affect, but that there is no time in life when it cannot do so. In one commentator's words, the vice of the tongue spreads and prevails over every part of life. It is as active and potent for evil in old age as it ever was in the days of our youth. And throughout the whole cycle of life, from birth to death, the tongue can stain and defile not only your life, not only your own life, but the lives of others as well. The course of life involves others. It not only stains you, but it also goes beyond yourself to touch and stain the whole network of people that are within your circle of life. As one man wrote, the tongue sets on fire the entire complex of human existence in all its varied activities and relationships. The present tense, he said, indicates that the tongue perpetually, habitually causes human firestorms. I mean, truly, truly, an uncontrolled tongue can produce the same destructive effect among families, churches, communities, and even nations that an uncontrolled spark has on a vast forest. Consider how many friendships have been hurt or destroyed. How many homes have been damaged? How many marriages have been ruined? How many churches have been divided? How many wars have been caused because of the sinful, evil words that come out of the mouth? And once they're said, you can't retract them. 
Think of someone like Hitler. We've all seen the film clips of him giving his speeches to, to vast, vast multitudes in Germany, just mesmerizing them with his hypnotic oratory. When he was able to set that entire nation on fire and as a consequence ignite the whole world in war. And not only that, he was able to convince people to participate in something as satanic and evil and barbaric as the Holocaust. And the tongue is small. Just like a spark is small, but a spark can set a whole forest of flame setting on fire James says, the entire course of life. And in the rest of verse 6, James is very specific about uh, the power source for such destruction. Look back at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And then notice what he says, and set on fire by hell. Set on fire by hell. Nothing stronger has ever been said about the tongue. It is set on fire, James says, by hell. It is continually set on fire by hell. And James here used the same word for hell that his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, used. Gehenna. And outside of the Synoptic Gospels, this word Gehenna is only used here, a fact that just underscores the terrible source of the destructive power of the tongue. Now, most of you know that Gehenna is literally the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a ravine or valley southwest of Jerusalem where all of the refuse and filth and human excrement and Bodies of dead animals and bodies of criminals were cast and burned. And the fires in, in the valley of Hinnom were continually burning, so there was constant smoke and, and stench coming from this location. And the same location was also the ancient site of Canaanite and even some Israelite rituals in which they sacrificed children to the pagan god Moloch. Gehenna was a maggot-infested, foul, forbidding place where the fire, smoke, and stench never ceased. And when the Lord Jesus wanted to explain the eternal nature of damnation with its burning and suffering, he used the word Gehenna to help his hearers understand it's the place where the fire never goes out, where the worm never dies, where the thirst is never quenched. It is that eternally burning place. So Gehenna is an apt symbol of the future home of all unrepentant sinners. Eternal fire. As one man said, all the filth of the city accumulated in Gehenna. So too, he said, the evil of our sinful hearts accumulates on our tongues. James' point is that the uncontrolled tongue is set on fire by hell itself. In other words, it's fueled by hell. In other words, behind it all is Satan. Behind it all are the powers of darkness. You see, your tongue and mine can be a tool of Satan to pollute our whole person 
and to corrupt those that are within our circle of life. It all comes right out of the pit of hell. It, it burns our lives and the lives of others with its filthy fires. And just think of the tongue's destructive power. Think of the tongue's destructive power in gossip. Gossip tears down others. It is the spreading of unfavorable information about someone else, even if that information is true. One commentator wrote, Gossip often veils itself in acceptable conventions such as, Have you heard? Or did you know? Or they tell me? Or keep this to yourself, but? Or I don't believe it's true, but I heard that. Oh, I wouldn't tell you except that I know it'll go no further. Of course. And the most infamous such rationalization, he said, in Christian circles is, I'm telling you this so that you can pray. He wrote, this seems so pious, but the heart that feeds on bearing evil reports is a tool of hell and it leaves flaming fires in its wake. Closely related to gossip is innuendo. You know, the word that remains unsaid, that, that awkward silence, the, the raised eyebrows, the quizzical look, all meant to suggest something bad, all accusatory and derogatory in nature. And then there's slander, the making of a false statement or a misrepresentation about another person that defames or damages that person's reputation. You know, we do this when we ascribe wrong motives to people, even though we, we can't see their hearts. We slander when we misrepresent others' position on an issue before we have taken the time to understand that position because we've never talked to the person. And then there's flattery. As someone once said, gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face, but flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his or her back. It's nothing more than a blatant attempt to manipulate another person. And the Bible repeatedly warns us against flatterers because they are destructive people who are full of improper motives. And then there's criticism. You know, negative comments that may be true but don't need to be said. And criticism can take many forms, but it's always motivated by self-doubt and jealousy and envy. And there are many other ways the tongue can destroy. Lying, half-truths, which are still whole lies, deceiving, boasting, meanness, harsh words, sarcasm, insults, ridicule, etc., etc., etc. All of these are meant to put down or humiliate and hurt another person. And all such sins have their origin in the pit of hell. And they defile the person committing them, and they destroy others. But the Apostle Paul instructs us, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And the child of God should actually sound like a child of God. Our tongue should give evidence of the new creation that we are. So God's word to us this morning through James is that the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. It's set among our members, staining the whole body, set on, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Boy, what a description that is. What a description of the, the power of the tongue to corrupt. And loved ones, you and I need to remember that, or we need to remember this imagery whenever sinful words are seeking to force their way out of our mouth. I mean, the tongue is so potentially dangerous. It is so destructive. It's no wonder James is greatly concerned about what happens when Christians open their mouths. The tongue is capable of such terrible injury, such devastation, such destruction. And this means that yours is. And mine is. I mean, you may have reached a stage in, in your Christian life where you feel that there are some sins that you are unlikely to commit. But let me tell you something. You be sure to settle this in your mind. That there is no sin which you have become spiritually incapable of committing. The tongue is a fire. It's liable to break out and wreak havoc at any time. And every mature believer realizes that in his flesh, in his humanness, the sinful power of the tongue uh, to devastate remains. Your tongue, loved ones, and mine is not glorified. But thank the Lord. I mean, won't it be wonderful to have a glorified tongue someday? A tongue that that does nothing but utter praise and thanksgiving to God and speaks nothing but righteousness. And continuing his graphic description of the destructive power of the tongue, James says now in verse 7, notice, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And as you know, at the time of creation, God commanded Adam to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And that God-given dominion, confirmed after both the fall and the flood, has been exercised ever since. And James is stating a simple fact when he says humans can and have tamed all kinds of animals. In fact, I think we'd have to say that some dogs obey better than some children. But if you've ever been to SeaWorld, you've seen trained seals and dolphins and killer whales. I mean, I don't know if they still have the killer whales or not, but they used to. If you've ever been to a circus, you've seen all kinds of trained animals, trained bears and monkeys, birds, snakes, horses, camels, even lions, tigers, and elephants. You know, we've seen them perform their routines. The wildest, smartest, fastest, biggest, most powerful, and most elusive of animals have been tamed by man. 
But never, never, has there been a man or woman who could tame the tongue. And I say this on very good authority. Look at verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 8 says, literally, the tongue, no one of human beings has the power to tame. Even though man can tame the wild beasts, every person faces quite a different proposition when it comes to taming his or her own tongue. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, that we can train something as small as a mouse and as large as an elephant, but no human being can tame his own tongue. And that is why, very much aware of that danger, King David prayed, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. No statement in the Bible puts man's power into such precise perspective. He can tame the tiger, but not the tongue. His tongue is is beyond his control. And that's why no one is able to say, I am now in perfect control of my tongue. It will never let me down again, never wound anyone again, never criticize anyone again, never grieve the Holy Spirit again. Because the tongue is beyond human control. Man cannot control the tongue. Yet the tongue must be tamed. The tongue must be controlled. And so that's a huge problem, isn't it? Well, who then will tame the tongue? Well, you'll notice that James does not say no one can tame the tongue, but no human being. So therefore, we have to turn elsewhere for help, don't we? So who can tame it? Well, God can by His divine power. If you know Christ personally, God's power through the Holy Spirit's presence transforms our hearts and our tongues as well. I mean, as Christ said regarding another impossibility, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so we look to God and His enabling power to tame the tongue, but even as believers, our tongue easily slips out of its sanctified cage, as it were, and and does great harm. For as James said, we all stumble in many ways. And no one, no mere human can tame the tongue. And so we must turn to the help and the grace and the mercy of God, so that when the tongue is tamed, when the tongue is controlled, we admit that it was done by the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the enabling power of God. No human being can tame the tongue. And then notice what James says. He says, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Restless is the same word translated unstable in chapter 1, verse 8. It means unstably Restless, you know, always in motion. In other words, there is never a time when, when it sleeps, so you always have to be on guard against it. The tongue is a, a restless evil. It's like a caged animal just wanting to escape this cage that God has put around it. It's always ready to break out. It fights against restraint. It, it doesn't want to be held back. Oh, you know how we love to give someone a piece of our mind, right? 
doesn't want to be held back. So it's, but it's not only like a caged animal wanting to break out. James also tells us the tongue is full of deadly poison. It's full of deadly poison. The language is very similar to that of the psalmist who wrote of evil men. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Of course, Paul quotes that same verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 13, as he is describing the unbeliever. And he wrote there, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The untamable tongue is even more dangerous when we consider the deadly poison that it can deliver. Its venom, so to speak, is more deadly than that of the most deadly snake because it can destroy morally, socially, economically, and spiritually. One man said, The poison of the tongue murders men's reputations by the slanders it utters, their souls by the lusts and passions it stirs up in them, and many times their bodies too by the contentions and quarrels it raises against men. James says the tongue is full of deadly poison. So it's like we, we, we have a capsule of cyanide behind our teeth just ready to break open and spread words of death wherever we go. It's no wonder then that the Bible tells us in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And that is why the godly Robert Murray McShane resolved that when a fellow Christian's name was mentioned in his company, if he could not say anything good about him, he would refrain from all speech about him. Better that surely than to be careless with fire and destroy a brother for whom Christ died. Yet people think nothing about destroying a brother with their tongues. The tongue can be the most powerful, destructive member of the entire body. And lastly, and and very quickly, in verses 9 to 12, James now deals with the inconsistency of the tongue an inconsistency he no doubt had observed among believers, which is why he is addressing the issue, writing to Christians. Look at verse 9. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. But then with the same tongue with which we bless God, James continues, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. I mean, every Christian should absolutely rejoice that, that he is able to use his tongue to express praise and thanksgiving and love and adoration to God. But the problem is that in the very next breath, they can say sinful things about another person or persons, people who are made in the very likeness or the image of God. I mean, the tongue has the ability to play the part of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I think all of us can relate to James' illustration from our own personal experience. You know, you're driving along, (laughs) singing to the Lord, or 
you know, having a conversation about the things of God or listening to a, a sermon, you know, on, on, on the radio and suddenly some guy cuts you off and you have to swerve or hit your brakes, you know, to keep from hitting him. And, and worse than that, the tongue you just used to praise God suddenly switches gears and you find yourself yelling at the guy and shaking your fist at him, you moron! And then I look over at Barbara and she says, oh, that was really good, <laughs> pastor. Hate it when that happens. Unfortunately, I'm not joking. The Lord always shows me how much work I have to do on the tongue when I get on the freeway. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. The word cursing isn't limited in meaning to the literal calling down of curses on people or swearing at them. No, it, it takes in all of the bitter, callous, unkind, critical, spiteful, angry, harsh words that we can sadly use about our fellow man. One commentator I read uh, said a friend once told him that one of the most challenging sermons he had ever heard was called Ten Minutes After the Benediction. And he said it spoke of those who moved in moments from the gloria to gossip, from creed to criticism, from worshiping God to wounding men. And then he asked, can we plead not guilty to that sort of thing? That's the kind of inconsistency James is attacking. And so it's little wonder that he adds, look at verse 10, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And this is very strong in, in the Greek. We don't get it as strong as it is in our English translation. But the idea here is that, there's ab that there is absolutely no place no place in a Christian's life for this kind of duplicitous speech because it is not only inconsistent, it is sin. It is sin. And James closes this section on the tongue in verses 11 and 12. Notice verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Well, what's the obvious answer? No. The spring doesn't give water or doesn't give two extremely different kinds of water. It gives out of what it is. It gives according to its nature. Can a fig tree, verse 12, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Again, the obvious expected answer is what? No. No such thing is possible. It is utterly contrary to nature and cannot happen because, again, everything produces after its own kind. And then James states, verse 12, Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The only thing it can yield is what it is. A salt pond can only yield salt water. It cannot yield fresh water. 
I mean, this, this too is obviously impossible. And no rational person would think twice about believing anything to the contrary. And what is James' point? Very simply this, that whatever comes out of the mouth reveals what is on the inside. Our words reveal the state of our hearts more than any other measure of spirituality. You know, as we said in our first study, our words matter more than than we can possibly imagine. Because the genuineness of our faith inevitably will be revealed in the words that come from our mouths because ultimately they are coming from our hearts. As Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. The tongue reveals what is in the heart like nothing else can. Bitter words expose a heart that is bitter. Angry words, an angry heart. Boastful words, a proud heart. Deceitful words reveal a deceitful heart. Hateful words, a hateful heart. Seductive words, a seductive heart. I mean, conversely, a hateful heart cannot produce loving words. An unrighteous heart cannot produce righteous words. As Jesus said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus, he said, you will recognize them by their fruits. So James' point is clear. I mean, as Christians regenerated by God through his word, we should bear fruit in keeping with who we are in Jesus Christ. Because when God transformed us through the power of the gospel, he also gave us the capacity for new, redeemed, holy speech. And he expects us as his children to speak as God's children. What does that look like? Well, Paul said, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. He said later in Ephesians, in chapter 5, verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And then in Colossians 3, 8, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And then he said in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And what Paul is saying there in Colossians 4, 6 is something like, let your speech always be always with the graciousness that is appropriate to Christians, those who live in a state of grace. You know, what comes out of of his mouth should be a reflection of the newness. What what comes out of a Christian's mouth should be a, a reflection of the newness of his life in Christ. In fact, what should come out in our speech is the grace of Christ himself. And so that rules out all harshness, criticism, gossip, and all unkind, ungracious talk. Unbelievers should see a difference in us, and they also should see a difference in the way that we talk. They should recognize that we don't grumble, complain, or or run people down. They should know that we don't gossip about others. 
And a believer's speech is to be gracious. And as Paul said, seasoned with salt. In other words, our speech should be flavored with our knowledge of God's grace. You know, it'll be significant. It'll have effects. It'll do good. Our speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, consistently speaking good, kind, and and true words toward both God and man. But it is painfully obvious that we fail in this area more than any of us care to admit. But thank God, perfection in controlling our tongues is going to come when we get to heaven. But that doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and just let it rip because, oh, well, we can't be perfect. Not at all. No, that means we strive by the grace and strength that he supplies to see that our speech is always gracious and seasoned with salt. But now we stumble in our imperfect speech. It's just a sin that uh, sinful speech has just become so acceptable in the church. But it should grieve us because it's sin. It's destructive. I mean, we stumble in our imperfect speech, but it should grieve us and we should repent and trust the, the righteousness of Christ. So James has confronted us with the question, what does your speech tell you about yourself? You know, please don't just shrug this off. And please think about it. Think deeply about it. Because I can tell you that over 30 years of ministry, I have seen and felt the destructive nature of the tongue. In this ministry and in the ministry of other men that I know, It's ugly, and it's destructive. So please think about this. What does your speech indicate about the true spiritual state of your heart? Because, see, you can draw a straight line from the tongue which is seen to the heart which is not seen. And our words betray where we stand spiritually. So again, what does your speech tell you about yourself? You know, is it possible that sinful patterns of speech have become so ingrained in our lives that we no longer notice them? You know, have calluses developed on our hearts from our corrupt patterns of speech. You know, ask yourself, does my speech fit with the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, what words are we using habitually and and what effect are they having on our actions and relationships? You know, ask yourself, is there someone I need to apologize to? Is there a broken relationship I need to mend? And let's ask God together to convict us of our sin of speech. 
I mean, only when we have brought to realize how dangerous and destructive our tongues have been do we cry out to God in repentance and run to him with tears to seek forgiveness. And as I said earlier in the study, our only hope as we pursue the taming of our tongues is that we are Christ's and that we are being made increasingly like him. But this, this battle for holiness in our lives and specifically in our speech is a long-running one. It won't end until we get to heaven. And it needs to be fought constantly, daily, hourly. I mean, it needs to be fought moment by moment because that, that caged animal there is just wanting to get out. And so what do we do? James doesn't really tell us. He diagnoses the problem. He's a great diagnostician, but uh, not many things to do here to correct this. But I think if we looked overall in the book of James, uh, you know, he does tell us, you know, we're, we're new creations in Christ. Uh, but there, there are some practical things that, that we can do in this battle for holiness in our speech. Number one, we just need to recognize who we are in Christ. You know, we're new creations. And how important for us to recognize the power of the new birth to create affection, new affections, new desires, which in turn are expressed in new patterns of speech. I remember hearing the testimony of a man who was a, a colonel in the Marine Corps. He was a, a base commander and had an extremely foul mouth, and he got saved. And he said after he got saved, he didn't even know how to talk. Because just about every word he used was a swear word. But God gives us new desires, which in turn are, are expressed in new patterns of speech. I mean, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and he enables and empowers us to live the life that we're called to live. But of course, we have to put forth effort to draw upon all of the spiritual resources that are ours in Christ. So we may not be that, that mature believer we want to be, but thank God we're not the old person that we once were, right? We're making progress. So we need to recognize, number one, who we are in Christ. We're new creations. Number two, we need to continue in prayer. I mean, there must be an ongoing uh, prayerfulness. I mean, we, we must live in an attitude of prayer. You know, regular, detailed prayer about everything, including our tongue. I mean, we're to pray about everything. We should be praying uh, also about our speech, our tongues, controlling our tongues. And then thirdly, we need to continue in the Word of God. I mean, as we hear the Word of God again and again and again, our, our mind or our heart is being transformed and renewed, and that in turn begins to produce a transformed tongue. I mean, one man said the principle is this. As we spend more time in God's word, what comes out of our mouths is more and more determined by what has come out of the mouth of God. I like that. So the most important single help when it comes to using our tongue for the glory of God is allowing the word of God to, to dwell in us richly so that the result 
as Paul said in Colossians 3.16, is teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that, loved ones, is why it is so important to be under a ministry of the Word of God where the Scriptures are expounded with the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is by this means, it is by sitting under the Word of God and along with our own personal Bible reading and study that the Word of God begins to do its spiritual work in us, you know, sanctifying us. God's Word sanctifies us. And so the more we get up in the morning and feed ourselves with the Scriptures and the more we're saturated with the Word of God under a biblical ministry, the more the Word of Christ will do the the sanctifying work in us and on us and consequently the more of Christ and the more Christ and his word molds and shapes us then the more it will affect the use of our tongues so that when we speak it will be with the accent of heaven if you will you know our real home last year when we were in Texas visiting our children we had opportunity to go together uh, to, to a location uh, and, and, and tour this location. And, and as we were there, we uh, struck up a conversation with an older lady who had a definite accent, and it wasn't a Texas accent. I mean, it was very clear that she was from somewhere else, and she was. Uh, she was from Great Britain, and that's what I thought it was, a British accent. And she had, she had come to Texas from Great Britain via the Middle East, and it was a very interesting story. But the point is that her accent indicated something about who she was and where she was from. You see, unbelievers should recognize a difference in the way we speak. Because when we as believers speak, it should be with the accent of our heavenly homeland. So let me ask you this morning, do you speak with a a heavenly Jesus-like accent? Do you speak like someone who sounds a a little like Jesus because you've been born again, you you found forgiveness and transformation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now his his word dwells richly in you, and your speech is beginning to have a heavenly Jesus-like accent? Does that describe your speech? It should should describe your speech and mine. And may that be true of more, true of us more and more. More and more as we are being made into the image and the likeness of Christ, including our speech. Amen.
On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.